0: Okay, look, we can't stop you from raiding Egyptian tombs, but if you must, please leave behind the desiccated bug corpse in an emerald green bottle.
1: <laughs> Hello and welcome back everybody, bug fans and mummy fans alike. I'm Ryan Whitley.
2: I'm Jessica Burke.
0: And I'm Damien Smith.
1: And together we're whiskey in the weird. This is season two, and we are excited this season to be talking about Crawling Horror Creeping Tales of the Insect Weird, edited by Jeanette Leaf and Daisy Butcher. It's part of the British Library's Tales of the Weird series, which collects weird stories of yesteryear from mostly obscure authors and compiles them according to a theme. Each season, we'll bring you an exploration of a different book in the series, and each episode, We're going to bring you one of the stories in a full spoiler discussion episode. Jess is our master story planner. So, Jess, what's the story we're reading tonight?
2: We're reading The Mummy's Soul by Anonymous.
1: I think I've heard of that person. But before we get to that, big fan, (laughs) big fan. We've got some (laughs) drinks to talk about. So, Jessica, what are you drinking tonight in that jam jar of yours? (laughs) Okay. (laughs)
2: so there's this literally
0: va- y'all literally yeah. she's drinking from a jam jar
2: it's fine it's got an ice cube in it it's
0: <laughs> a few bits of cherry around the bottom
2: i think it there's was a ra- label there's i think it was remnants. raspberry jam um okay so i bought this bottle that i've been seeing at my closest liquor store and i just keep getting mad about it and i sort of bought it to like I don't know, dunk on it because I thought it was so ridiculous. I was going to be like, oh, this is the worst. Okay, it's really good and now I feel stupid. Uh, so it's called Savage and Cook, the Burning Chair Bourbon.
0: All the right. bottle,
2: The bottle's absurd. It is solid matte black. Uh has this like stupid black and white label. It's... <laughs>
0: She's really selling this one, y'all. You dumb, stupid bottle, you.
2: It just looks very, very different from everything on the shelf. And I was just like, God, this looks so stupid. So I bought it, obviously. It's really good. It smells really sweet, but it's so smooth and has like 10 million flavors. It's really good. Like, I can't ethically recommend it because it looks so stupid, But if you are looking to like, I guess, just buy a bottle of something and never look at it, this is a fine one to get.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I want you to hate drink this.
1: (laughs) The title makes me anxious. Like, I feel like it would be a better title for a hot sauce, perhaps.
2: Or like something that's like, I don't know, scotchy or has kind of that like charry flavor to it. It doesn't. It's super smooth. Really fruity. It's great.
0: Uh, I'm super the, intrigued. The fruitiness, and all the <laughs> just make me want to get it even more. Bit well, of raspberry.
2: Right. A little raspberry in it from your jam jar. Um, <laughs> and I just.
0: <laughs> she realizes she's just been drinking liquid jam. This is really it's embarrassing,
2: delicious. right? It's, no, it's technically a cocktail now. It's fine. Uh, this week, I rewatched a movie that I. Watched a while ago, but it's now on Hulu. It is a 2021 Welsh horror movie called The Feast. It is... Ooh,
0: heard good things. Heard good things.
2: Uh, In my notes, I wrote down, it's a body horror dinner party, uh, which is normally not something I like. Like, it's really gross. Um, and it's a dinner party, so they're like eating gross food and they're doing gross things. And it's normally, again, not my bag, but I really like this one. It's like eco horror, folk horror. Um, as soon as it starts, like you're just on edge. The whole entire movie, you're Ooh. really, really tense and really, really grossed out. It's great.
1: Sounds awful on both accounts.
2: Damien, how about you?
0: <laughs> well, I bought this stuff that looked like absolute swill and I just wanted to hate it. So I spent my hard-earned <laughs> money on it. And it turns out I liked it. I'm so upset.
2: So mad about it.
0: <laughs> um, this week I made some jerk chicken, uh, and I was really digging on it. And then I was like, "Let's go more into the Caribbean. Let's let's do some more Trini flavors." So I actually found this stuff. It's um it's a pretty popular like cultural beverage that has a lot of like Trini roots, but it's also um dates back even further to like West African roots, where it was called um, bisap. But it's essentially this kind of a tart hibiscus tea. So it's this beautiful purplish pink color, and then it's brewed with a bunch of um, spices uh, like cardamom and ginger and uh, like peppercorns and cloves and allspice. So it has this sort of mulled wine bite to it, except it's hmm. non-alcoholic, and it's, it, it's got this tang, like a really sharp cranberry tang to it as well and it's super good on its own and i guess it's like a refresher and sometimes people will drink it with water like fizzy water anything like that but it also makes a really good rum cocktail so i threw in some local rum uh (laughs) distillery out of out of uh maine um and it's definitely not super super powerful it's not like a barrel aged uh or barrel strength rum and uh, nor is it very sweet because there's a lot of sugar in this uh, sorrel. So I took a jigger of the rum, I tossed it in the sorrel, I added a splash of Topo Chico because I have to bring some hipster cred to this cocktail and I'm drinking it out of a ball <laughs> jar a la <laughs> yes. uh, And it is really, really good. It was my first sorrel experience and I'm digging it. I'm going to look for it more in my specialty shops, kind of hard to find. Uh, this was based out of Brooklyn by a maker named Nazinga Knight. So it's called Brooklyn Brood Sorrel. Try and find it at your local specialty shop. Give it a go. Cool. As far as out stuff outside of the series that we're reading, uh, I just watched a really dreadful, amazing debut film uh, from Jonathan Cortez, uh, 2020. Uh, it was He wrote and direct uh, a film called My Heart Can't Beat Unless You Tell It To. And I got to say, similar to Jess's feedback on The Feast, this was just a movie that drops you right into the action. You feel awful the entire time you're watching it. There is no bright silver lining, but it is so compelling and so mesmerizing. And it is so magnetic the way that it draws your attention and keeps it there. Uh, I would definitely throw out this disclaimer that it's not for everybody. The pace can get a little draggy sometimes, but it's definitely intentional. And it, there's no other way uh, to tell the story. Uh, and I don't want to give out uh, too much away. But again, it's called My Heart Can't Beat Unless You Tell It To. It's the Which debut is film. A really um, good title. It's a great title. And I think it's based off a song um, that is featured in the film. But it's the debut film written and directed by Jonathan Quartus.
1: Very interesting. Well, for the purists among our listeners, it's my turn. I'm drinking scotch. <laughs> Scotchy, scotch, scotch, scotch. <laughs> Tonight, the Scotch of choice is the Bunnahabhain twelve year old, a classic Isla whiskey. That is what makes it unusual is that it is non-peated. It's from the Isla region, so it's got all that salt water in the air that just is infused into it. But they do not use peat in its distillation, so it has a, a very different flavor from other Isla whiskies. It's a delicious iteration. Uh, I also have a bottle of the eighteen. But I only bring that one out for very special occasions. As one does. As one does. And uh, for my recommendation tonight, I'm I'm doing a little bit of a throwback. I, I read a story a little while ago that was in one of these old omnibus, like haunted house ghost story collections. I've been trying to collect these on eBay whenever I see one come up. Uh, That's a reasonable price. And so I've gotten some pretty fun ones. Um, I believe this one was in the Oxford book of English ghost stories edited by Michael Cox. And uh, to fans out there, you're going to know this one and you're going to love it uh, already. It's the Phantom Coach by Amelia B. Edwards. It has almost everything in it that I want for a perfect (laughs) ghost story it was so good it's got a a dude that's lost that gets taken in for the night by a guy in a crumbly old mansion who also seems to be like some sort of crazed alchemist but you know go ahead and stay the night it'll be fine Um, that turns out not to be the worst part of the dude's adventure because in an effort to get home sooner uh presumably to flee the madman uh he takes a, a mail coach even though he had been warned uh, not to take the mail coach because um a long time ago a mail coach had crashed had run off a cliff nearby Uh, And so it was considered bad luck to take the mail coach, but he takes the mail coach anyway. (laughs) And uh, the story is 200 years old, folks, so I'm not spoiling anything. You've had time to read it. Um, What ends up happening is, of course, is the mail coach that he takes (laughs) is the one that crashed and everybody that's in it is dead. And it is a glorious story. Amelia B. Edwards, the Phantom Coach, highly recommended. All right. Well, let's get into another old story. This one is called The Mummy's Soul by anonymous. Tell
0: us the background of anonymous, please, Ryan.
1: (laughs) I have a thoroughly researched anonymous. (laughs) Today's tale is by a writer with a long and storied career. No one quite knows when Anon was born or when or if they've died, but they've been active for quite a long time. Aside from this present story, some of their most famous works include Frankenstein, Pride and Prejudice, and Go Ask Alice. I am, of course, only kidding, but at the time of their publication, all three of those very famous works were published anonymously. Although we now know who those authors are, we do not know who wrote A Mummy's Tale, and no end of speculation has gone into trying to figure it out, including on the part of your Three Good Coasts here before we began recording. Nowadays, more authors publish under a pen name than anonymously, but the idea remains the same, to protect the identity, for whatever reason, of the writer. Sometimes this is done because a writer has established a name for themselves, writing one kind of work, and now they want to try their hand at something else without connecting their new experiment to their known name, Stephen King famously wrote under the name Richard Bachman to see if his books sold because of his ability or because of his brand. His son uses the name Joe Hill to distance his name from his more famous father. You can find lots of examples of this. In the 19th century, women writers often published anonymously because authorship was considered to be a man's pursuit. It would have been vulgar to be known as a writer for a woman then, who were supposed to confine themselves to domestic respectability. Marketing trends in publishing today demonstrate that we are not that much more progressive, actually. Women writers in quote-unquote male fields like genre, fantasy, sci-fi, and horror particularly, often publish using initials. For example, fantasy author R.F. Quang In those genres, sadly, a male readership demonstrably buy books more often from male authors, so women adopt initials in order to compete. And this isn't the only reason they do that. There's a whole host of reasons, but this is a common one at least. And I, for one, hope that this trend becomes unnecessary as soon as possible. Today's story was the first mummy short story to be published that we know of, and it launched or was the predecessor to a mummy mania. It predates uh, <laughs> Jane G. Austin's story, which we've already covered, and Louisa May Alcott's, which we spoke about, by a few years. It was published in The Knickerbocker, volume 59. The Knickerbocker was a monthly literary magazine running from 1833 to 1865, edited and published by Lewis Gaylord Clark. It used its literary prowess often to call attention to the vanishing wilderness, and thus is considered, actually, to be one of the first environmental magazines in the United States. Other famous writers who graced its pages include William Cullen Bryant, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, Oliver Wendell Holmes, and James Russell Lowell. All, you'll no doubt have noticed, sharing the same sort of plumbing. Jess, what's our story about?
2: (laughs) Jesus.
0: Just dropping that bomb in there.
2: Uh, All right, folks. This one is not long, but a little bit complicated. So bear with me as we go through it. So our narrator, Fred is in an Egyptian tomb hidden beneath a ruined city surrounded by sculptures, mummies, and murals. Immediately, he's worried that the mummies are going to come to life, and he gets so worked up about it that he runs back to the entrance of the tomb before heading back in. Almost everything that could be stolen is already stolen or opened, but one tomb is still sealed. Fred and his guide try to open it with a crowbar, but eventually blow it up with enough (laughs) gunpowder to get the stone panel to detach what falls to the floor and shatters.
0: Fred is a man's man.
2: Right. Like I imagine the crowbar thing was like two seconds and they're just like, oh, we can't do it. Break out the (laughs) gunpowder. Go to the gunpowder. All right. What do they find inside their newly opened tomb? A mummy, of course, all bandaged up and laying on a bed of dried flowers. The mummy is a woman which makes Fred feel sick. It also smells really bad, making him feel sick in a different way. He imagines the mummy getting up and stalking through the passageways of the tomb. (sighs) He then starts unwrapping the mummy, which everyone knows is a bad idea. Don't do that. There are rules,
0: Fred. There are
2: rules. He thinks the mummy's face looks like his dead sister. But he keeps unwrapping her, describing her beauty as he does, and he picks up a little stone beetle statue that has the words, 3,000 years hence, a new life carved into it. Next, Fred finds a very fancy green glass bottle, which he somehow immediately spills. This guy is not careful. A big dead bug and some ashes fall out of it. Uh, The guide picks up the beetle, calls it the devil, and chucks it into the mummy's casket. Fred picks it back out, looks at it, and describes how gross it is. It looks like a fly, but it's six inches long, with a head the size of a pea. It has sparkly white eyes, wings, green stripes on its body, and is covered in yellow hair. It also has strange, broken-looking red red antennae. Mm. Antenni. Antennies uh, <laughs> that make our narrator feel disgusted just looking at them. He shoves our bug friend back into the jar with a handful of mummy dust and gets out of there. He heads back home uh, to the U.S. Once he's home, he keeps showing off the dead insect. Everyone, appropriately, thinks this is super gross except for his wife. So our narrator, Fred, sort of notices... But it also takes him months to realize how much time she's spending with the bug. He confronts her. She bursts into tears and says she can't help it. She thinks it's pretty and irresistible, and it also reminds her of all of the trips that he's been on. So now they're both super into this bug. They're spending hours staring at it, touching it, imagining what it was like when it was alive. (laughs) Months pass again. One day, Fred is working in his study with ammonia and ether when he's called away. So he leaves the mixture in a bowl on his desk, and a servant puts the fluid in a jar because it's very stupid to leave smelly, dangerous chemicals laying around. It's also very stupid to put smelly, dangerous chemicals in unlabeled jars, but that's a problem for later. Fred heads to bed. The bedroom connects to the study, and the door is open. No big deal. Totally fine. Uh, Fred wakes up in the middle of the night to soft tinkling music, but also to a groaning wife. She moves her <laughs> ha- her hand. Yeah, yeah. She moves her hand onto his face, and he she finds moves it. Moves
0: her hand onto his face.
2: And of course, the hand is dry and disgusting. Dry
0: and disgusting.
2: <laughs> he kisses her, but her face is just as gross.
0: It's like she- leather.
2: Uh, she is feverish and shrunken looking. So pretty cool. Uh, Fred lights a candle and his wife stares <laughs> at him without seeing him. Looks like she's dying. Uh, She reaches out, maybe to comfort him. But Fred thinks there's no way this dying lady, his wife, could have any idea of what he's going through. Uh, having to <laughs> look at him. <laughs> Having to look at his wife. A looks man's so, man. Right. Part
0: like my,
2: my wife looks so ugly and weird. You can't imagine how hard that is for me. <laughs> so he takes her into his arm and they both hear the music again. The wife shakes and starts looking like she's being mummified, kind of in time to the music. Her skin shrivels up. She starts turning dead and brown. Uh, Fred calls a doctor who can't figure out what's wrong, so he calls a, a second doctor. The second doctor is my kind of doctor and prescribes brandy to stimulate her sluggish blood. Immediately after the doctor leaves, Fred finds blood on his wife's pillow. There's a little broken spot in the skin behind her ear, like a pinprick that's oozing blood that somehow neither of the doctors noticed uh fred heads to a study but as soon as he closes the door behind him he is hit in the face uh this bug is flying right at him this is where he discovers that the bug is making the music it's flying around the room fred is chasing it's throwing things at it eventually it escapes into the ventilator i don't know what the ventilator is i assume a vent uh, now, Fred discovers that the bottle the servant put the ethery ammonia mixture in was the green bottle that they'd been storing their bug in. He thinks, by agency of these liquids, vigorous life has been created in the body of the embalmed insect. Um, our narrator makes a few more wild assumptions about how science works.
0: Such, <laughs> Take that, Mary Shelley.
2: <laughs> well, you know, so okay, the insect lives on human blood. Uh, okay, all right. Uh the fluid left in the bottle must be the embalming fluid that the ammonia mixture replaced, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh heads back to his wife. Um she's still dying, he's still mad about it, he loves her so much and she isn't even awake to realize to realize how hard this is for him. We don't know how much time passes. Um, But there's some other afternoon they hear the bug's music again and the wife officially dies. Uh, After she's buried, Fred goes a little nuts trying to find the insect. Um, Eventually he hears music as he's like tearing open the walls and is stung. Immediately he feels soothed, calm and he starts imagining that he's laying in the sand in front of a massive Egyptian statue watching the Nile. He wanders around this like dreamy Egypt, touring different temples, admiring sphinxes, while becoming more and more terrified. The cities are all kind of in ruins. Um, They're empty. He's hearing whispering. The sun is super hot. To get away from the sun, he digs himself a little grave and covers himself up with sand. (laughs) Sure. Uh, While he's in his grave, vibrations and sounds start and they drive him out of the ground. Um, A giant statue comes alive and mangles Fred, that's the verb. He feels like he's being stung by a thousand bugs and everything goes dark. Out of the hallucination, Fred now believes that there's a mummy sitting by his bed every night. And underneath the bandages, the mummy is his wife. So Fred isn't sleeping. He's still feeling the effects of being stung. Um, He's always thirsty. He looks terrible. He's again, obsessed with the bug, But in a different way, this time he's really determined to kill it. It's his new purpose in life. Um, He finds the insect back in his study. He tries to attack it, flies into his face again, hits him over and over. He falls to the ground and throws the glass bottle at the bug, finally squashing it. He throws the dying insect into the fire and hears a woman scream as it burns up. Uh, Immediately after, he sees the mummy again. This time she's sitting in a chair, pulling the bandages off her hands. She gestures for him to sit next to her, but he runs out of the room. He looks back, kind of trying to prove to himself that he was imagining things. But when he does, he sees the mummy collecting the ashes of the insect out of the fire. Uh, Fred takes off, wanders around the street all night. The mummy is still in the bedroom. Fred says that he's trying to starve her. He thinks about trying to sell the house, but he had to show people that there was a mummy, and when potential buyers peeked through the keyhole, uh believe it or not, they were no longer interested in buying a house with a mummy.
0: <laughs> Fred uh, however did sign an HGTV series that will be airing next year.
2: Right, and also like in this market, just like one mummy, you are probably still going to buy that house.
0: <laughs> <laughs> just one.
2: There's just one mummy. It's, it's, it's a sellers market. In a bedroom. So Fred fires all of his servants, boards up the windows. It's been 49 days and he can hear the mummy wandering around in the bedroom. He thinks that she's finally dying and he's also dying. But at least he has enough energy to move the pen to record this story. The end.
0: Bum bum bum.
2: <laughs>
1: this recap has been brought to you by Loxaton moisturizers. Are you moisturizing <laughs> at night.
2: Is your skin dead brown and turning mummified?
0: And is it causing a problem for your husband?
2: <laughs> He's real sad You do
0: not him. want to cause a problem for your husband.
1: <laughs> what did you guys think of this one?
0: I I mean, I enjoyed it. Um, I think when we talked about it, this is definitely uh, highly literary in the writing style. And that isn't necessarily my bag. But that being said... um. It it struck me as an entirely novel, and for it being the first of its kind, the first mummy story like out there that sort of set in motion the concept of a mummy's curse and the mm-hmm. concept of like this pervasive force that you can't get away from. I it was exciting to me. And yeah, a lot of that, tropes
1: come from this story. Apparently, a lot of the mummy yeah. tropes.
0: Um, but it also took a bunch of different directions. It felt like uh, it felt like a few genres blended uh, at the time that I think those genres hadn't even been established yet. And I felt like it was very interesting. And normally, I mean, Jess's recap aside, if someone were to tell me about the story, I probably wouldn't be interested in it. Jess, of course, brings a certain joie de vivre into any <laughs> sort of recap that's given. But maybe I wouldn't be into it because at this stage, it's a little it's a little archaic. No pun intended. Um, and it's been done before, but it's because it was the first. So right. Right. Uh, with that in mind, I mean it just gave it a little bit more weight and it helped me to enjoy the story more, aside from the crazy twists and turns it took, and you never knew where it was gonna finish. It's hard to remember
1: in some of these old stories that we we encounter them and we might think, Oh god, I've seen this done before. Right. Except when this is the first time it was done. If you if you are bored in an afternoon, perhaps, and want to look at some one-star Amazon reviews. Check out some of the ones for Dracula. Uh, people are t- are talking oh. about how like it's so it's so <laughs> tired and and boring because all of these tropes from vampire stories have been done ad nauseum, and they they just really want something new. It's like this is Dracula. This is the one that started <laughs> all that.
0: <laughs> this guy probably watched Blade and just decided to do it. Book.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know the same really can be true funny. for these
0: mummy stories. But I I do have
1: to actively. Remind myself. Okay, this is the first one. So, what makes what makes this story special in yeah. in reading it for that first time as a, a come to it as a first time reader? Uh, what makes it special? That it's important to remember those sorts of things. Jess, what do you think?
2: I thought this was super fun. The writing was a little bit over the top uh, in some of the descriptions and kind of I describing. What <laughs> describing what Fred was imagining, um, or seeing, or hallucinating, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it was great. Like I like that it started out immediately scary, right? Like we've got yes. this guy yes. worrying about mummies in the like first page, and that <laughs> carries through throughout the whole story. Uh, I thought it was genuinely like creepy. Mm-hmm. The idea of a mummy like sitting by your bed, like With doing like her oh, hand come on here. your
1: face, yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: yeah come here, come and sit by me. Like, gotcha. that's Good. so creepy.
1: I really enjoyed the story too. And I, I I played with something as I was rereading it. I think, I mean, you, you can you can disagree and Damien probably will, but I think that you I can read yeah, several I paragraphs as having been from the perspective of the mummy before it morphs into Fred's perspective.
2: Give me and, ten minutes. I'll yeah, do quick, dear yeah. listener,
1: please pause. Yeah. <laughs> while we all reread uh, the first few pages.
2: Well, we don't know even what Fred's name is until halfway through the story. He's just that's, that's what I mean, narrator. Yeah, it's just you get his entire internal monologue, but you don't know anything about him other than guy opening tomb, being scared.
1: Yeah, just just to uh, because we care about you, dear listener, to bring you along uh, from the first paragraph. The sculptured faces of colossi gazed with stern, tearless eyes over the waste, as if in mockery of the frailty of contemporary creations. Around me were mummies, sculptures, and rough paintings on the walls. Life and death here touched each other, and were identified by the reality of mutual existence. I mean, I think you can read those first two paragraphs and think uh, who whose perspective is this from? It was an interesting, it was a fun little game I played with myself as I read and reread. Well, let's talk about the writing. I think all three of us have mentioned it. Uh, This is probably the most purple prose we've read at least this season. I don't know about last season, uh, but at least this season, it's up there. Uh, What did, what did you think of the writing? And uh, as a sub question, Operating on the assumption that this is written by a woman, does anything about the writing suggest it couldn't stand up to any other story?
0: Well, no, there's nothing about the writing that says it couldn't stand up to any other story, Um, except for the fact that maybe, I mean, Jessica kind of touched on this a little bit. It feels like it's trying a bit hard. To your point, it's very ornate, it's Mm -hmm. very literary. There's a lot of purely literary terms throughout this story. And it's like, are you trying to flex? (laughs)
1: <laughs> um, flexing
0: <laughs> prior to the sources. Yeah. <laughs> it's impressive. It's- exactly. So, I, I mean, it also limits the readership, right? But is it because someone is really just showcasing their skills and their adept uh, nature at authoring tales, no matter what the subject matter could be, that it still comes across as being extremely uh, poetic? I mean, I, I like the writing more than I thought I would. Again, if someone were to describe the nature of the story, both in content and form, I likely wouldn't go racing right. to my library to <laughs> right. to grab a copy. But that said, knowing that we were reading this for the cast, I was like, "Wow, this I enjoyed this a lot more than I thought." So Yeah, once props, you sort of got props, props into its
1: headspace. On. I mean, it, yeah. it yeah. flowed a little exactly. bit. Once you as soon as you as soon as you turn the the first page, you re, you recognize right off this is a little bit different. Uh, but it's once you once again, once you get into that headspace it flows easier.
0: I would, but, and then I would also use the writing style, staying consistent through the story to sort of negate your concept that the perspective shifts from the mummy to Fred I told you because, he'd disagree. Yeah, there it is. There's a disagreement <laughs> because if that were the case, there was absolutely no change in the literary style. And therefore, I mean, it, it, that would be a shot in the dark to say, because there's no other indicator that, that would counter that proposition.
1: References to Thebes aside, there's no other indicator. and you know the other thing that caught my attention and i know you guys picked up on this too there are some really easy comparisons between this story and the last mummy story we read oh
0: no doubt
1: even uh even a direct quote on the opening page after three thousand years does that ring any bells for anyone
0: (laughs) (laughs) title alert everyone take a shot no, I mean, the, <laughs> the the fact that the inscription on the scarab statue at was, you know, 3000 years, a new life. Uh, the fact that there were pinpricks as evidenced by uh, penetration of a, you know, poison, diseased, venomous insect, whether it takes part in it as an inanimate necklace or as uh, a, a thought to be corpse of this like majestic, somewhat hypnotic insect that is captivating to the lead female of the story. Like there is, there are a ton of overlaps and I'm actually super surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if it was like maybe Luis May Alcott or BFF, Jane G Austin that were just using this as a rough draft to see uh, because this was published first. Yeah. As a study, almost, it sort of right. like, yeah, to see how it would be received before diving into something that was more stylistic, unique to themselves. Which makes you wonder, what did those two women know about mummies that the rest of us didn't?
2: Well, or like the Thanksgiving story that we were talking about. What did she make up that now we just believe about mummies? (laughs) (laughs) Right? (laughs) Thank you for all that conventional wisdom. (laughs) 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 Right? Like, oh, we eat turkeys at Thanksgiving because of the story. And now we think mummies are wrapped in bandages and full, you know, like I know that we know those things, but (laughs) uh, I I couldn't find it. But when I was reading it, I feel like I remember, like she even mentions when uh, Fred is daydreaming about the mummy, that it's like walking with its arms out. There's a scene where a bat flies out of a tomb. Like there's a lot of these kind of like, well, this is now how we think of mummies. Yeah, just,
1: this is like
0: a
2: you know,
1: gothic imagery. Yeah.
2: <laughs> from Boy, this- and I always
0: credited DuckTales for those imagery, but <laughs> you know, I'm just going to have to change my mindset.
1: Well, moving us away from DuckTales a little bit. Um, <laughs> not too far. Is, not too this, far. This is a risky question, but did did anybody else get sort of vague like necrophilia vibes from this story?
0: Oh, you mean how Fred was getting hot and horny even after seeing his dead sister wife uh, <laughs> the, turning yeah, into a that. leather wallet in front of his yeah, face? Yeah, that. like moccasin, moccasin-humping Fred, just loving the fact that he was all up on a, a dried piece of beef jerky. Yeah, I, I guess a little bit, maybe a <laughs> tiny bit. It was hard for him. Yeah.
2: Yeah, the the couple paragraphs where he's describing his like wife dying and how hard it is for him are really well written in this like weirdly compelling way because you can see her turning into a mummy mm-hmm. basically, right? Yeah, she is just and it's it's be- remarkably
1: sad. You're right.
2: Yeah, it's and, very like, sad. He, he keeps talking about like her eyes and how they used to like love him and now they're just like dead and she looks like a weird idiot. Like the words that he's using to describe <laughs> his wife that he loves, who's painfully dying, and then like his biggest complaint is that. Like, because she's dying, she's not there to witness how hard this is for Mm -hmm. him or, like, what a toll this is taking on him. And so, like, the focus is still kind of, like, on this idea of what his wife should be and what he wants his wife to be, but not the current beef jerky wife that is <laughs> living in his bed. Uh, yeah, it's strange. The relationship with the wife is strange.
1: Well, and speaking of yeah. like tropes that got invented and carried forward, maybe this is one of them because in so many of the other mummy stories, well, at least the one that we've looked at and in a few that I've read, the, the romantic seduction of the mummy to the modern person is is a common thread in a lot of these stories, even in the in the the Fraser movie, the Mummy. That's a that's a part of it. Um, and the Mummy, you know, on the one hand, is like the super hot babe or whatever, and then you know the the mirror turns and you see that it's it's you know beef jerky babe, as 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 you say. Well, <laughs> even <how
2: they're> <laughs> <laughs> hashtag beef jerky babe. <laughs> hypnotized by the bug, right? So the wife yeah. is is mesmerized by this, like right gross dead insect and she spends months just like touching it and thinking about it and then he's just like oh yeah i think i'm into this bug too and then they just spend months together touching and thinking about this bug like there's something weirdly seductive in yeah and it's the mummy even before it becomes a mummy and it's a it's
1: a romantic like couple event to manipulate this
0: bug
2: Uh, i mean that's usually
0: (laughs) second date activity for me but you know teach their own i reckon have I showed you this bug? Hey,
2: you want to see my weird <laughs> my, my, insect? My
0: giant golden termite with a weird proboscis. All right. Is- well,
1: <laughs> calling calling together all of these things that we've already talked about and wrapping up the writing section of this particular episode, I'd like to read a quote. This is from page forty-one. This gives you a little bit of a flavor of not only the ornateness and the complicated nature of the writing, but also of its beauty as well as some of these trope-setting ideas that we've mentioned. Anonymous writes, (laughs) As I unwrapped the long bandages from the breast, a strong gust of wind rushed from the desert into the dim crypts of the mountains. It flared the expiring torches, scattered dust from pillar and niche, and caused the mummy to crumble into a nauseous powder that half-choked me with its subtle essence Of humanity. From a mass of beads and shreds of cloth, I picked out a stone scarabaeus, on whose back was graven many minute hieroglyphics. I succeeded in translating the following. Three thousand years hence, a new life. So I think that just neatly encapsulates everything we've talked about. (laughs) Over the last few minutes in the writing category, and unless either of you have anything further to say on that subject, I'd like to move to the next question.
0: Next question. Let's do it.
1: (laughs) All right. Even though this is a mummy story, this is a bug-themed collection, so I was wondering what y'all thought about the
0: bug in this story. Scary. Gross. Very scary. Very scary. Yeah. The fact that the most pervasive, well, first of all, uh, it was reanimated and resurrected. So that's kind of (laughs) cool. Zombie Uh, bugs. I, I wasn't as physically disgusted from this bug as I was from something like caterpillars, which still has the grossest bug to date. Uh, because it it seemed more intriguing and almost artistic in its depiction, with its like golden, silvery body parts and liquid metal head and sparkling white eyes and yellow stripes and everything like that. It just it seemed very ornate, like art come to life. Um, and but the concept of it haunting somebody to the point of madness or near madness, a la the moth. Yes, uh, yes With regards to yeah with regards to the sound that it made with its wings and the fact that it was always there like reminding uh, everybody about its presence I-, I thought that that was pretty cool and you know it's poisonous It instills a <laughs> sense maybe even a spirit of a long dead you know S. and uh i don't know there was just a lot of cool complexity going on with the bug and everything i learned more about it i was like oh this is cool and kind of creepy i thought maybe more like rad
2: than <laughs> scary so i thought it was gross like the way he's describing the bug where yeah. it's like yellow hairs and you know like weird and, and ten eyes. um like gross appropriately gross like a bug is but mm-hmm. then when he's talking about like pulling it out of the bottle and showing people all the time and his wife like you can just picture her fascinated by this Your bug. Egyptian
1: treasures you want to show them off at a party
2: yeah but i don't no, not a gross Still one. Still a dead bug. Still a dead bug. But then you just can picture his wife like holding this bug. Caressing just this like, thing,
1: loving this yeah. thing.
2: And then like they're passing the bug back and forth and they're thinking about it. Like that makes it way <laughs> grosser. Like if they were passing around a statue of a bug, I feel like that's one thing. But they even.
0: My love. The- now you hold <laughs> the bug. It's your turn. <laughs> now I shall hold the bug. It's
2: your turn with the bug. <laughs> But the author even describes it as, like, elastic. Like, it's, like, so I'm just picturing this, like, stretchy, slinky thing that they're, like, passing back and forth. Like, that's really disgusting and creepy.
1: I thought one of the most disgusting things about it was its size.
0: Like, isn't it? It's
1: Six inches. Yeah, yeah.
0: And that's I mean, when it was dried. <laughs> one can only imagine when it was rehydrated, rehydrated. and reanimated bugs, how big it really bugs was.
1: Bugs are okay for me, like within a certain size parameter, but the six inches is too big.
2: Six inches, but then <laughs> its head is the size of a pea. Yeah. So like.
0: To me, it sounded like a termite, like a really elongated body. Yeah. With a very tiny head and like long, you know, rhythmic wings. That sounds like a termite. If I had to draw it, I would draw a termite.
2: But then like a stretchy one. <laughs>
1: If you'd like to donate to Whiskey and the Weird Friends, Damien will send you an NFT drawing of a
0: termite. That's right. (laughs) Fungible, that token. (laughs) I dare you.
2: I'm going to funge it. So at (laughs) at, at the end
0: of this story, there's
1: this really odd, like seemingly out of nowhere line. And I want to get your guys' take on it. It says, This is on page 56. And there's even a footnote about it. It says, Those are her dying groans, but wither. O oh, whither out into what new life goes that undying Egyptian soul and I shall I be linked through eternity by a terrible destiny of unknown mystery whirling through what Hermes Trismegistus of Thebes calls the downward-born elements of God now, ancient Egyptians can call in and correct my or ancient Greeks, I should say, can call in and correct my pronunciation of Hermes's surname. But <laughs> <laughs> what the hell is this all about? What what? <laughs> what? <laughs> it's from a play of some sort or a writing of some kind.
2: I think that it's in there to show that our lovely narrator, Fred, is like a very cultured guy, right? Like he's quoting this literature, he's doing science experiments, he's traveling the world. Like I got it as just sort of an example of like, oh, like this guy just he's got everything, he knows everything, what a bunch of terrible stuff is happening to him.
1: Or or maybe I think to the point that Damien made earlier, if if this is a woman writer trying for cred, she's throwing yeah, exactly. this in there to say, I'm I'm well read too
2: right like the the parts in there where he's doing science are the funniest parts of this (laughs) entire story um like he's just like trying to describe like well obviously we put in this one liquid and the other liquid fell out now it's alive like what else is there yeah yeah, that
0: was pretty good Uh, (laughs) but i I like how it's described as one afternoon i was basically playing with ether and ammonia and then i got called out and then when i came back the bowl i was mixing them in was gone. So I went and to bed. Like, oh, yes. wow, what a moved it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seriously.
2: Uh, but uh, well, like around that section, he says, "I accepted the facts as they were presented." Like he's just like, "Well, obviously this is how it happens because I'm a man of science and I can see." Yeah, he really,
0: he really didn't dwell <laughs> on the fact that he resurrected this insect nope. based on just this like basting fluid <laughs> of, of what could have been a bombing fluid passing. I
1: mean, the I think day. I think that that it's because
0: that stands to reason.
2: Yeah, I mean, you that's, vinegar. That's what's
0: going to happen. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. If you- <laughs> Everyone knows you don't mix ether and ammonia, otherwise, you raise the dead. Right. Duff, Fred. <laughs> but I, you know what? I would, I would, I would venture to say that, I mean, there's a point where he gets bitten by the bug. Like he mentions that he felt a stinging only for a second. And it, it that, that, um, was a precursor to him going into that fever fugue state where, you know, he was seeing everything around him and seeing the, inch, in, the ancient city of Thebes like in its glory 3,000 years ago uh and so i th- just doing a quick googling of hermes trismegistus hermes trismegistus hermes t hermes trismegistus uh, yeah hermes t to his friends is the reputed it's it's a mix of hermes and the egyptian god thoth who was the reputed author of treatises that have been preserved so basically in a roundabout way it was just like this curse is something that like stays to this day and the words that i read are preserved to this day and now will I continue to live out this curse mm-hmm. uh because I got bitten by the bug as well so this it's is just, just a knowledge Soon going soon to be then. my this day is, this yeah, is not I meant so. to be a,
1: a coda There's of some kind
2: definitely some of that where um she's naming the statues and as uh fred is touring around is like dream yeah. egypt like she's naming the statues that he's seeing you know she's she's doing a little yeah. bit of like Proving she knows and she's done her work. Yeah, that's
0: fair. I mean, and I as, think we as we all know, <laughs> yeah, as we all know, the pharaoh assuming that might my a bad, Right. No, I
1: know. mean, I think as a editor, I might have suggested she leave T herm out at the end, but probably therm. Anon a right. doesn't brook any editing, so doesn't need it. All right. So what is it? This is the second mummy story we've read, the second scarab bug mummy story. What is it about ancient Egyptian culture that is just so fascinating? To the modern Western reader.
0: Got an easy answer for this. Why the mummy mania then? (laughs) Yeah, the fascination and the ceremony behind death. I think is arguably one of the most ornate, one of the most complex, and one of the most renowned in ancient world history. The way that Egyptians at the time treated their dead and honored their dead is just something that is very visceral. And it's something that people, once they hear about how bodies are prepared it's both intensely interesting and also macabre and grotesque. And so because of that, they more or less captured the market when it came Mm. to treatment of death and corpses. And so it only serves as an amazing entree to allow that to be the basis for horror stories.
2: I think for contemporary audiences like part of it too is like it's the first cool thing that you hear about when you're a kid right everyone either has their dinosaur phase or their like ancient egypt phase uh um, this is truth uh and so i think that there's probably some like nostalgia to like i was a mummy, mummy once for
0: halloween as a child
2: see yeah you had a yeah. mummy phase. i was
0: too I was I was legit wrapped up, and those wraps came undone pretty quickly, so I was basically, basically walking around as like a half-naked six-year-old trying to get candy. It's, it's
1: only for the picture, Damien. That's the only part that matters. Yeah, yeah it doesn't matter.
0: <laughs> in fact, if you have a picture
1: of that, I'd love to see it because I want to see if we had the same mask. If it, it was, in fact, the same year. Oh, I didn't have, have a mask. Ma- no mask? Oh, I had a mask. No
0: it was, it was, I was just wrapped up. I think it was uh, medical gauze or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, of course. Which was very loosely held together in only a few key places. So when one of those clasps <laughs> let loose, like, it just the whole thing unraveled. Mm-hmm. I was like, I, if I were a real mummy, I would have just had nothing on underneath except like a Well, skeleton I mean, I whatever,
1: don't think but. that your parents were willing to go the extra distance. I, for example, was embalmed for that year. <laughs> <We're>, mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, one upper. <laughs> you won this round. <laughs> I, I think that ancient Egypt uh, captures our attention. I mean, the reasons that Damien brought up are very salient. Um, the pageantry of the pantheon of gods, for example, is is just yeah. very dramatic. The imagery is dramatic. The hieroglyphs are so foreign to our eyes. And you, you see in all kinds of movies that, that deal with this subject, there'll be some scene in which the hieroglyphs come to life and march around in front of you and, you don't even have sure. to I mean you don't even have to have a movie to see that happen before you if you're just watching if you're just looking at hieroglyphs you can see how they would come to life and move around I think that the pageantry and the ritual and and uh, certainly it taps into judeo-christian biblical stories that a lot of people are very familiar with and then you add in the concept of a a dead Person who still is preserved in such a way that their features can be discerned even after three thousand years, for example. Yeah. I mean, when I went to the British Museum, I made a beeline for the mummy exhibit. I mean, and that was as a twenty-something-year-old. You know, not Mm -hmm. even not as a child. That's what (laughs) I wanted to see as a young adult. It's the most exciting thing. Now, the Rosetta Stone was also there. Less exciting. It's just a stone with a lot of letters That's on it. As a rock. As yeah. a tablet. It's a rock. Well, this tees up the the last question that I have for us quite nicely. Uh Damian, thank you for that. One of the themes I think you can draw out of this story is that love continues beyond death. And this world is possibly not all that there is, or at least there's this hope that this world is not all that there is. I have a quote that I'd like to Uh, call our attention to on this. This was, I think, one of the most beautiful pieces of writing. And I think, uh, Jess, this may be the quote you alluded to earlier. On page 48, Anonymous writes, To love a woman as passionately as I loved my wife, and hold her in one's arms as the last great change of life gradually develops, to feel the beatings of the heart diminish, to see the gasps for breath, to look into the eyes, soon to close forever. And read in them the love they look back into yours Are the saddest of duties to the dying But how terrible the anguish When the eyes are fixed in an idiotic stare Their (laughs) light forever extinguished And the loved one, unconscious of your maddening grief Your piteous, unavailing love Is released by death from her unhappy life aside from perhaps the strange use of the word idiotic there just,
2: <laughs> this it's is this so is really funny
1: this is a really beautiful <laughs> like sad piece of writing i uh, yeah. i i don't know if either of you have had the opportunity to witness the death of a loved one or be present for the death, of death of a loved one, it's an event. Had that- the opportunity, <laughs> that was
0: an interesting turn of phrase. Well,
1: I'm serious well, about of you that had- too, though, because for a for someone for whom you care deeply, it is it is the last great gift you can give them. Uh, I have been present for many people's deaths in that moment, and I, I really just resonated with with that writing. But it's that makes sense. It's it's gorgeous elegy. A lot of horror stories in general ask questions along these lines, y'all. What conclusions could one draw from this but also from all the stories we've read about how these authors, at least as our representatives, deal with death? How well does our American culture deal with death?
0: And that's like an entirely separate episode. I think just <laughs> the concept of humanity's dealing with death as as we talked about the pageantry and the ceremony with regards to Egyptians as a culture, Death was just seen as a phase that you moved into. And I know that there are a lot of Western religions, a lot of global religions that see death as just a part of the entirety, of course, that runs through eternity. And so for a while, we're in this corporeal form, and then we move on to this ethereal form. And so people are never really gone, and death isn't really seen as a as a final stage, whereas others who are more agnostic or religious, you know, may see it as being once the physical person is gone, the physical person is gone, and that's it. Uh, But I think everybody to the quote that you read resonates with that, like final interaction with this person. The final, you know, the eyes are the window to the soul, and when they turn Mm -hmm. hollow and glassy and stare through you instead of look at you, then all of a sudden that's the sign that love is lost. You're right; it's heartening. I think it's too little, too late, and I think amongst the purple prose of this story, (laughs) right? Yeah, it 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 might get lost. Yeah, it kind of got lost, and it kind of came across as a little superficial. Uh, but that being said, it still was heartfelt. And it does elicit some terms that e- even if, you know, you have like relationships that change, maybe it's the death of a relationship or the right. migration of a relationship. And you know, that last moment mm-hmm. when that stage of the relationship existed before moving on to the next stage that, you know, you remember those moments. Something and is so, lost. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And it, there's no doubt that Fred loved his wife. There's no doubt about that. (laughs) Right. He he came across as a bit of a simp, but, you know.
2: (laughs) Well, even for as much as, like, I was sort of making fun a little bit of the way that he's relating to his poor dying wife, like, it's also very understandable. Like, if you're going through something terrible, like, I want to be able to turn to my partner and be like, oh, my God, can you believe this? Right? Like, you Mm -hmm, want someone there. And when that person is the reason that you're going through this and you don't have anyone else to, like, hey, I need – you to help me with this, or I just need you to be here for this. Uh, yeah, man, I get it. Like, that's tough.
1: I just read that passage and it was, it was clear to me, whoever wrote this story is somebody who has been in that moment. I I don't think you get, you get that sort of writing from somebody who's guessing.
0: No, I, I agree 100%. I think that's drawing from a real, real life loss. I think Uh, it it is kind of funny when you think about it though. It's it's kind of egocentric, you know? Well, it's, it can be. It's yeah. not so much that the person is gone, it's that I'm losing this person. Like Jess just said, it's that I can't sit there and like bemoan something, the the shitty bottle of uh, whiskey that I just bought because it's so ugly and crappy. Like right. my loved one, my loved one was the recipient of that story right. and they're not here. So now who do I tell? Oh, <laughs> woe is me. You know? And so there, there, there's a there's a part of that I think at the root of most of our grief.
1: I think we as Americans deal with death very poorly as a culture. I think that we tend to privatize death. We don't want to see death. Um, We hide death behind the mauve curtain of the hospital room. I want to point to a piece of media culture that changed in a lot of people's minds how we deal with death. And that was the HBO series Six Feet Under.
0: Six Feet Under, no doubt. I think
1: it's one of the best television series that's ever been made. And Agreed. once it was over, it would be fascinating to see a correlation between the conclusion of that show and the popularization of the hospice movement. Because I think wow. I think that people really wrapped their minds and hearts around the work that hospice does after spending six years with whatever the family's name in that Mm -hmm. that show was, Uh, particularly with the last episode being as powerful as it was. I think that we are doing better at dealing with death, but when you look at, uh, for example, as Damien says, when you look at how the Egyptians did it, they embalmed the bodies, they wrapped the bodies, they washed the bodies, they prepared the bodies with all these little things that were to go with them in the afterlife, when one of our loved ones dies, we call somebody to come and take the body away. We don't spend time with the body. We certainly don't wash the body. At least most people don't. But you don't have to look all that far back into American culture, into Western religious culture to find those traditions. And you know, at the risk of sounding morbid, it might do us a good turn if we recovered some of those
2: traditions. Whatever progress we were making, I feel like the last couple of years... Has really slowed that down. Like at this point, like we're not even acknowledging that like people are dying. Like Ralph, we are that, moving yes, past that, that stuff so quickly that I think that that's going to be a big hurdle of even just like recognizing that people are grieving. We're not mm-hmm, doing that. Mm-hmm, like, right. There's so many people that are gone and their families are still around and we are just moving just past moving it. Just moving past it.
0: Yep. Just moving yeah, past it. Yeah. People don't know how to react. External folk don't know how to react if you're outside of an inner circle. You don't know to what level of grieving is appropriate, whether it's someone close to you or far from you. You don't know how to interact with people who are grieving because you don't want to offend them. They don't know how to receive. Yeah.
2: There's so Um, many hurdles right now to just like. Yeah.
0: It's everything is so complicated. And to the topics that both you brought up, it becomes taboo. It's like you can't ask about things like manner of death. Well, I think that we can just skip. Is it a life well celebrated?
1: Yeah, we can we can skip past some of that uh, culturally with people by just starting to issue golden scarabs to folks that are grieving, and say, (laughs) I I think this
0: says it all. If you need a translation, ask Fred. I'm sorry
2: your wife died, but what if she was a cool mummy that hung out in your bedroom instead, (laughs) huh? Mm? Never
0: give up hope.
2: Never give up. You
0: give them a hand pat and just walk on. Little moisturizer canapes. (laughs) I'll be over here by the miniature pigs right. in a blanket. <laughs> All right, let's let's move ahead then. Did the scare hold up?
2: Yeah, I thought this was really scary.
1: Oh, uh, I thought there
0: were parts Just, of it that were
1: that were actually
0: creepily
1: fear-inducing, yeah. goosebump-raising, scary.
0: And there was like a scare for everyone too. Mm-hmm. Like body horror, great. You like you know, supernatural horror. Great. You like the concept of curses, necromancy. Great. Here you go. You just spooked by bugs. You got a creepy bug for <laughs> you. <laughs> Even at you don't the, like yeah. enclosed spaces. Sure. Here you go.
2: At the beginning where he's like imagining that there's mummies stalking around yeah. him. Like mm-hmm. it's tense. And he's just hanging out in a room. There's nothing scary happening.
1: Can you imagine reading this? before you knew what a mummy even sort of was. I mean, I just think Right, this just is going to like yeah. frame
2: what you think it a really, mummy Yeah, it yeah, paints yeah. the picture yeah, for you.
1: Yeah, no question. No, I think it, I think the scare definitely holds up for this one. Which brings us to our whiskey ratings. This is how we rate stories here on Whiskey and the Weird, all the way from one finger of whiskey to five fingers or the coveted full fist of whiskey. Jess, what are you giving the mummy's soul?
2: I wrote a four and a half. I thought this was super fun. It's sort of hard to describe, but it's like big and cinematic, right? So you're reading the story and it's ostensibly just kind of about this couple. But there are these like big, massive set pieces and these like dream sequences and all of this tension. Um, One thing that I thought was very cool and funny um, was I I watch a lot of movies with um, closed captioning on. Like I just want to be able to read them. And if
0: I'm just getting old, so I need it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And what did they say? (laughs) Sometimes the captions will be half a step before what's happening on screen. And so you'll get something that says ominous music before the ominous music starts playing. And this had that vibe. Like, You hear the Beatle. Like it says, like, I hear some some music and you're just like, oh, no, something's happening. Like it's very cinematic and how you kind of like relate to what's happening. There are these things that are queued up and then you head into the next thing. I thought it was great. I really, really like this one.
0: I like the fact that Jess mentions that subtitles because one of the things that really bums me out when I'm watching like a horror movie or something that has a jump scare is that it always gives you the, <laughs> the jump the scare actor's line and then like an M dash. So you're like, oh, well, great. Something's going to happen. Uh-huh. As soon yep. as they say this line, like <laughs> they get shot or a beastie grabs them yep. and pulls them up. Oh, yeah. And so it's, it, music. it's like, yeah, yeah this, <laughs> the world's worst spoiler alert brought to you by yep. um, Deep captions of America, closed captioning of America. Uh Yeah. So I, I do not have the fan fervor that uh, Jess has with this story. I appreciated a lot of it and I liked it more than I thought. But that being said, um, I'm only coming in at three and a half fingers of whiskey for this one. It's still an enjoyable story. I still liked it for what it was and I still appreciated what it brought to both the genre and to the trend that, or that it caused to like take off into the ether. No pun intended. (laughs) But there were some things that just didn't stick with me. The fact that there was this like ether ammonia concoction that just brought a bug back to life, <laughs> <You're> trying to <laughs> apply science to something that just could have been left to some weird curse. And some magic, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, just like, let it be what it is. Yeah. And, and some of the stuff that came across as a bit superficial, where I think if there was a little more character development that I really would have bought into it, as opposed to hearing a, a Hugo-esque seven page rant about how much this dude loves his wife. It's like, well, you know, you could show me in fewer words and more actions. <laughs> It was just one of those things that there were a few things that really kind of pushed it back with regards to fully being able to entrench myself and enjoy it and suspend that disbelief. But I love the elements that it brought to the table. And it was a very easy read. uh, And I did like it overall. So three and a half is where I'm at. I'm coming in. Team
1: Jess, four and a half fingers for this. one. (gasps) Nice. I loved the writing at the same time for as florid and purple prose as it was, which I really enjoyed it's that's the same reason I'm taking a half finger. It was almost too much. In (laughs) fact, it was too much to get a full five it it, I lopped off a half finger there. Uh, It it was over the top. Uh, (laughs) There goes the half finger. Uh, Just put it in the ammonia. I, it was God. too much for me. It was it, it was overcomplicated in parts. Um, but where it wasn't overcomplicated, I thought it was really evocative, really descriptive writing that put me there. I thought that this was... One of the scarier ones that we've actually read and kind of in that classic universal monster style, scary, mm-hmm. not, you know, the the Benson story that we read a couple of episodes ago was scary because it was freaking weird. And there's a few other stories that we've read that have been scary for different reasons. But this this had that classic black and white universal monster appeal to it. I really enjoyed that four and a half fingers of whiskey for me. I believe Jess has our if this then that for this episode.
2: I do. And it's uh kind of a weird one, but maybe not. So it was collected in 2016. It's um Jeff Lemire's Moon Knight number one. So it's a Marvel comic collection of um Moon Knight, who's basically like kind of an insane Batman-y character. Like he's a superhero, but he's also like in and out of mental institutions. Um so if you liked the sort of like madness of this one, uh, with this like big grand Egyptian imagery and backstory, I would check this one out. It's all of this story, but with a more superhero y twist. Um because it's a comic, it also has art in it. And the art in this one is particularly good. Um as an added bonus around when this episode comes out, I think, um, there's a Disney plus series of Moon Knight. Um, that I don't know how closely it will be based on this particular comic. Um, but that should be out around the same time as this episode is.
0: As a and further any excuse to watch Oscar Isaac, oh, am I right? Heck yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> humana, humana.
1: As a, as a further added bonus, if you're looking for something along the lines of this kind of writing, but maybe in the mood for a slightly more adventuresome story, there's a story out there that some of you may know called imprisoned with the Pharaohs that, if you look it up in its original context, we'll say that it's authored by none other than Harry Houdini. But Harry what Houdini a guy. commissioned H.P. Lovecraft to write the story for him, in which Houdini gets into a fist fight with some with some Egyptian dock workers or something on top of a on top of a pyramid, and ends up <laughs> um, ends up imprisoned under the pyramid where said dock workers are attempting to raise uh, Horus or some other elder god of the Egyptian pantheon that Lovecraft puts his own spin into. And even though it says Houdini wrote it, uh, even though it's ghostwritten by Lovecraft, it's pretty much a Lovecraft story. So if you like sure. this florid writing and, and also enjoy the florid writing of Howard Philip, then uh, check out Imprisoned with the Pharaohs. <laughs> if you like your media in audio format, and we hope that you do, because you're listening to a podcast. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> the Thanks, HP everyone. Lovecraft Literary Society has a wonderful audio drama of Imprisoned with the Pharaohs. So check that out. Check out everything the HPLHS puts out. They're, they do phenomenal work. All right. That brings us to the end of this episode. We want to thank you all for joining us tonight. We couldn't do this without your support, and so we hope that you will take a few moments, just really two or three seconds, to click a star rating wherever you catch your podcast. It really does help us. If you're feeling a little bit more generous, you might even leave a review. As always, we want to thank Dr. Blake Brandis for providing the music for Whiskey and the Weird. Hey, Jess, what story are we reading next?
2: Next up, we've got The Blue Beetle, A Confession by A.G. Gray Jr.
1: Oh, I do love some colons in titles.
2: (laughs) Damien, (laughs) where can the people find (laughs) this?
0: Hey, feeling a bit social? You can find us on Twitter at Whiskey Weird Pod, at Whiskey Weird Pod on Twitter. Or if you're an Instagrammer, we're on uh, the Insta at Whiskey and the Weird, at Whiskey and the Weird. We spell our whiskeys with an E and we hope you do too. If not, don't be surprised if you find a six inch termite flying around your house, hiding in the ventilators and humming you a death tune. Well.
1: I'm Ryan Whitley. (laughs) I'm Jessica Berg.
0: Good, I'm Damian
1: Smith. And together, we're Whiskey and the Weird. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you
0: next time. Send us home. As always, keep your friends through the ages and your creeps in the pages. And your bugs in the ammonia.
1: Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.